guys come on up and uh, you guys stand right down here in front, if you would, please. So come on up. Um, you know, the psalmist says uh, in Psalm 67, Lord, be gracious to us and bless us and make your face shine upon us that your way may be known to the earth and your salvation to all people. And so we have been blessed by a group of guys from our church that are going to be headed out to Haiti. I'm going to ask, uh, and we're going to be praying for them in a minute, but we have some young people that have had a big part in sending these guys off. They've taken a lot of ownership. So come on up, uh, gang, the Sunday school class. Well, they're getting organized, I guess. So they've got some five seconds. Okay. Anyhow, these guys are headed to Haiti this week, okay, and they're going to be in Pion, Haiti, which is in the northern part of Haiti, a kind of an upper plateau area. They're going to be doing some construction work projects. They're going to do some VBS and some training of some church leaders, and so we have a group of students who've taken a big part in, in wanting to encourage them, so they have some cards for our team members. So uh, I guess, Norb, you're the one getting the cards for everybody. So uh, uh, I guess, okay, some of them. So come on. Oh, yeah, you guys, you guys can stay right down here. You get right behind them, okay? Some of you fill in right behind them. Come on up here on the step. You can go on the step behind them here. All right? And then uh, we have a little check, actually a big check. Guys, can you just uh, give that to these guys right in the middle, and they can hold that check? Uh, presented on behalf of the... Uh, Sunday school gang, here's the work that they put in. Yeah, come on up, gang. Okay, so they did a, uh, there were some of our kids that did a lemonade stand at home, and then some of them did a lemonade cookie stand outside of church here, and then I know the church came and uh, gave some money to these guys, and I know some of you have been giving money to these guys. I haven't figured out, oh, Bob Vaughn here, he's the, he's the mastermind behind this whole thing. And I haven't kind of convinced him yet. We're, we're working on that to get us a little even more involved in this because these guys are basically kind of writing their own checks to go on this trip, and, and I think that should change because we're sending them out as part of our church, okay? So when, when uh, in Acts 13, when they commissioned uh, Paul and Barnabas, they went out as part of the church body. Well, that meant the church was supposed to be uh, like not just praying for them, but taking an active part of them. So I'm going to have the elders come up, and I'm going to ask one of our elder who's really kind of over our missions department, I'm going to ask uh, Mark Klein, and he's going to pray for these guys. We're going to lay hands on these guys, and we're going to pray for them, commission them out. And I'm challenging you to be praying for these guys every day, okay? You leave on the 25th, right? 26th. And when do you get back? 5th of October. So the 26th through the 5th. Every day, pray for them, and we'll commit them to God's care, and then we'll hear a great report when, uh, by God's grace, to get back. Okay, Mark, why don't you go ahead, and we'll be praying for these guys, okay? Our Heavenly, Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you're not just working here in Urbandale and the Des Moines area, but you are actively working every day around all parts of the world, Amen. Uh, spreading your word of truth and the gospel message that sinners can be saved through believing in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that uh, the work in Haiti would be strengthened through this team trip down there, that you would work in the lives of the team members here, that you go before them and be with them and bless them and protect them and work in their lives. But also, Lord, may they have an eternal impact for the kingdom of Christ during their short visit there. That lives, that children last year who heard the gospel and were saved, that there would be another um, harvest like that this year. That many would hear the word and be built up in their faith or be saved and that practical projects will go well and be very helpful to the people there. And as a church body, Lord, we just send them out, Lord, before you and ask you to do your perfect work in every heart and soul that the, and lives that they touch. Um, pray you be preparing divine encounters with mm -hmm. just the people you want them to meet with and use them in their lives. And thank you for the children here who got to take a part in that, Lord. And Lord, may you stir up even a greater interest in worldwide missions in our church. May you raise up future missionaries, maybe even out of these kids here. Um, we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. Thanks, guys. Let's give them a hand of applause. Let's send them off. All right. All right.
You getting a picture? You're done. Until you show up in Haiti. And then you're not done. All right, that's great. Let's uh, pray, and then we will spend some time opening the Word. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to, to share the gospel. And I pray uh, that you would take these great truths that we study, that you rivet to our hearts, and we wouldn't just sit on them, but that we would seek to share them by your grace. Lord, I know that in this text there are treasures yet to be fully tapped in my own heart and soul, and I pray that you would open our eyes. We might behold wonderful truths from your law, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Adam, start that video if you would. Hey guys, how we doing? Hey. Good. Doing How are good, you? doing good. So I know you didn't love the traditional vibe of the last place, okay? okay. But I think this church is really going to do it for you. Yeah. It takes relevance to a whole new level. Behind me, you will see molded clay, jar art, tapestry, canvas, mosaic wow. church. Mm, I love beautiful. it. Right? So you've heard of interdenominational, mm -hmm. right. and you've heard of non-denominational. Mm -hmm. Well, this church identifies as interdenominational. Wow, that's, that's perfect for us, it. it really is. But here's the kicker, a lot of celebrities go here. Yeah. What? Jeff Foxworthy. <laughs> we love him, yep. we really do. Ben Higgins from ABC's The Bachelor. Perfect. Several Real Housewives. Ooh, and that. Usher even came here one time. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. <laughs> yeah, wow. well follow me, come on. Let's do it. So refreshing. Honestly, that last church was just way too traditional. It was yeah. too much. It was like we left there feeling convicted, like uh. ugh. Right? Right. We're just, we're looking for more of a Tony Robbins type sermon. Like inspiration, like a TED Talk with a Bible verse. Yes. Oh, yes. Right? It's perfect here. We love it. It really is. We love it. Awesome. Cool. Well, you guys know a lot of contemporary pastors speak out of the Message Translation Bible. Mm -hmm. Right. Or this pastor speaks out of a brand new translation. It's the Tumblr Bible. Oh, Shut We love Tumblr, up. though. This is great. Wow. A lot of emojis, a lot of abbreviations. Oh, I couldn't ask for one. And how many seats in here? Oh, it is 6,000 altogether. Babe, 6,000. Wow. I gotta be in this worship band. That's Imagine true. me up on that Jumbotron mid guitar solo. Do you know how many Instagram likes you get? Oh. oh my gosh. Sad reality is that in humor, you know, the part of the things that makes humor humor is because there's enough truth in it that you are caught in the middle. And what I wanted to point out by this little video clip is that we are living in a culture in which people who are proclaimers of the truth are soft-pedaling the truth. And people who are seeking the truth are oftentimes sidestepping the truth. Seriously, the, the Tumblr version of the Bible, I know that was a joke, but it's probably closer to the truth than some of us would care to admit. Then we have, well, I don't want to leave church convicted, I mean, there's disdain for that. So why come? I mean, I'm not saying we should feel like we're heavy weight of guilt every time we go, but we should at least be willing to be open to what the Spirit of God has to say to us. The reality is that people's eternity is at stake. So if we're going to soft pedal the truth or if we're going to sidestep the truth, no, we need to be standing on the truth. Not just, as one person said, sitting on the premises, but actually standing on the promises of God's Word. We need to be living and serving God and truthfully. And, you know, the sad reality is that there's going to be a lot of people who've grown up in church, who've been in church, who aren't really blatantly objecting to the truths of the gospel. They're just kind of moving along in life. They're going to end up in hell. Because they simply are not allowing the truth that they are a sinful person, that their sin deserves God's punishment, and that the only remedy for their sin is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. They, they are not allowing that to be very significant in their life. It's just something that they hear and they don't really care. And one day God will ask each of us, what did you do with my son? What did you do with my son? And when we say, 
well, you know, I kind of thought he was a good idea, or he was a real nice teacher, or he was a, a very good prophet. That doesn't cut it. The tragic consequence of sidestepping the truth, the tragic consequence of soft-pedaling the truth, rather than owning the truth, is a compelling reason for us, I think, to listen to the first warning that is given to us in the book of Hebrews by the writer found in, in chapter 2. Because even though these other things are in vogue, sidestepping and soft-pedaling the truth, they're a tragic, tragic, result in tragic consequences. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews 2, where we find two powerful incentives for standing on the promises, for owning, not just overlooking the truth, not just allowing the truths of God's Word to become some sort of an insignificant part of our life or even a marginalized part of our life. I was reading the other day and. In uh, 2 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says to them, he says, My fear is that as Satan has deceived others, you, you also may be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. My fear in the church of Jesus Christ is that we are led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Jesus. And so we come to Hebrews 2. I'm going to read the text and then we'll unpack these two powerful incentives for owning, not overlooking the truth about Jesus, the ministry and the work and the words of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 2, for this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels and proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Verse 4. God also bearing witness with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. For He did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you're concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of of your hands, you have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subject to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim the, your name to my brethren and in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation or an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 
That was a lot in there, okay? So we're going to kind of have to, have to keep going in the text. But the first compelling reason for us to own, to stand on the promises of God's Word, is the compelling message that we have been received. The message is compelling. And in verses 1 through 4, there are three good reasons why there is this compelling message. First of all, the person who delivered the message is credible. All right. Notice the text says, for this reason. That's how it starts. It's just like, for this reason. Well, that connects us with the previous chapter, chapter 1. For this reason provides the basis of why we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Namely, the supremacy of Christ. That's all of chapter 1. He is our Father's divine Son. He is the exalted ruler. He is our eternal creator. He is the exact representation of God's nature who made God known to us. That's who He is. And so, by virtue of His supremacy, we should be, for this reason, paying closer attention to what we have heard. We, I think, refers collectively to those who are for the most part, intellectually cognizant of the truth. That means they're aware of it intellectually, but they're really uncommitted to the truth. So they have church, but they don't have Christ. Okay? They're coming and they're hearing, but they're not embracing the truth. They know it, but they don't own it. And Jesus' credibility demands that we own his message of salvation through faith in Christ. Okay, look, April 1st, 2019, I show up on your doorstep with this uh, check that uh, we just saw up here. Only I erase it and I put your name on it and I say, look, you just won the Publishers Clearinghouse Sweepstakes. April 1st, 2019. And you go... That's not even a good joke. But if a white panel van with Publishers Clearinghouse smeared across the back of it shows up, somebody in a suit and a tie and a, and a TV crew shows up at your house with a check written out to you, and they say, you just won the Publishers Clearinghouse sweepstakes, you're more likely to believe it. What the writer of Hebrews tells us is the one with all the credibility in the world, the Son of God, who is the exact representation of His nature, is the one who comes and communicates the message. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He is the one who communicated Then, Well, hey, His credibility is necessary and actually authenticates it. He says, lest we drift away. Reveals the consequence of not owning. Reveals the consequence of us not paying much closer attention. Is to drift away. And that's a, it's a word that's used to mean you get off course. The current or the, the wind current or the water current takes you away off course. Lest we drift away. The idea is carelessness. Now, I'm going to use a, a 64-cent word, not necessarily capriciousness. It's not necessarily intentional wickedness or intentional ignoring the truth, but it's just carelessness about the truth that often causes us to drift off course. I did a little uh, investigative work, uh, but it doesn't matter whether you, you drift off course or whether you just deliberately deny Jesus and turn away. The consequence is the same, but... There's a, a rule, it's called the 1 to 60 rule. If you're off one degree and you travel 60 miles off one degree, when you get to your destination, you'll be one mile off course. If you take the same thing and you extrapolate it out, that really basically translates for every mile you're 92 feet off. You travel one degree off course, in one mile, you're 92 feet off. So that means if you left JFK Airport in a plane or on a boat, which you can't do, but you, you could, I guess, but if you went in a straight line, and you left JFK and you went to LAX, and that was in your one degree off, you'd be 50 miles off course by the time you got there. It's a subtle, subtle and slow curve off. And he says here that if we fall away, lest you fall away. How many people? 
or trusting in their catechism. They're just, they're just, they're in church, they're doing a lot of good things, they're just a little bit off. They're trusting in their baptism, they're trusting in their confirmation, they're trusting in the fact that they showed up on Sunday morning, they're trusting in their church membership, they're trusting in how much they gave in the offering plate, they're trusting in the fact that they served in the church council, on the church board, they worked in the nursery, they did all this stuff, they even wore the right clothes. And they're just off course. The consequence, lest you fall away. See, all of us are sinners headed for hell. All of us. And we must be straight on the truth. We can't deviate from the truth if we're going to be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life. We're headed for hell unless we trust in Jesus. And that's the grand and glorious message of the Bible, which is laid out for us here then there's the punishment it's not just the credibility of the person there's the punishment which is absolutely terrible for indicates the second reason there in verse 2 he says for if the word spoken through angels now get this he's just proven that God in Christ is better than angels so if the word spoken through angels it's an argument from the lesser to the greater if what angels said proved unalterable and the consequence of violating what the angels said Stop there. What did the angels say? Well, he's talking about the Old Testament, which they received from angels. If you go to Acts uh, chapter 7, you can write this down. You can look at verse 53 or Galatians 3, 19. The angels gave the message of the Old Testament. If what they gave proved unalterable and those who violated it received a just recompense, his argument is, if the lesser system resulted in justice, then there's no escape of eternal condemnation for those who ignore the message that Jesus brings, which is far better than what the angels brought, because he's a far superior messenger and a far superior master. And so what he brings is greater. You say, well, I don't know that I believe that that stuff is right. You know, is there really greater condemnation for those who ignore what Jesus said versus those who ignore, ignore what the Old Testament says? Well, look at Matthew chapter 10. And if you looked at Matthew chapter 10, verses 14 and, and following, and particularly Matthew 11, verses 20 and 24, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, he says, New Testament with Jesus. For if the miracles that had been done in, uh, uh, in you, that had been done in Tyre and Sidon, uh, they would have repented in dust and ashes. Uh-oh. Sodom and Gomorrah said if, if, if the things that had happened in Capernaum had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, then they would have repented. Oh, it's far greater judgment for ignoring the message of Christ. When I was in junior high, our football coach was uh, kind of ruthless in his rules. And so one day we were out at practice, and one of my classmates was there, and Mr. Coach, I'll just say, I don't want to impugn his name, but he says, Mr. Miller! What time is it? Because my classmate had worn his watch to football practice. Which, you know, because he, he kept looking at his watch to see how much longer we had to endure this agony, you know. Mr. Coach didn't appreciate Mr. Miller wearing his watch. Now imagine what would happen if somebody had done something far more egregious, far more off base. He would have got him. And the writer of Hebrews says, if what angels say through the Old Testament is unalterable and the judgment is severe and swift, how much greater will be those who ignore what Jesus says? We cannot ignore such great a salvation. What's great about it? What's great about our salvation? What's so great a salvation describes the glories of God. And making it possible for undeserved and unworthy people like us to share in the glories of Christ and to be forgiven and have the promise of eternal life so that those of us who deserve just recompense don't receive it. But we're forgiven, freed from the wrath of God. So don't drift. Don't drift, 
away. Don't just be here and sit on the premises. Understand and embrace the truth. Own it for yourself or you will drift away and you drift away and there's no escape of eternal condemnation for those who ignore so great a salvation. And don't delay. Don't drift. But if you're here this morning, maybe you just kind of stumbled in and you say, well, I don't really, I mean, I've been in church a while, but I'm not really one of those people who really knows a lot about the truth. Don't deny the truth either because the consequence is the same. Don't run away from it. Don't delay and trust. Then there's the preciousness of salvation is verifiable. It's validated. So the person is credible. The punishment is terrible. And the preciousness of our salvation is verified. It's three grounds on which first the gospel is articulated by Christ. If you look at verse 3, how much, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed, it was spoken by the Lord. Okay? Validated by those who heard it. So it was first of all articulated by Jesus. It was validated by those who heard it. Most likely the apostles heard it. They're the ones he's referring to. And then it was confirmed uh, uh, by their testimony. You know, they said, well, we, we were with Jesus. We read Luke 1 sometime. All these things I'm handed down to you which I have seen and I have investigated thoroughly from the beginning and talked to eyewitnesses, blah, 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 blah. So this is what it is. It's a message they received. And then they, not only through their testimony, but they confirmed it through their activity. Read Acts chapter 2. And we're gathering together and they were, uh, the apostles were gathering together and they were breaking of bread and fellowship and, and prayer. They were, through their activity, through what they were doing, they confirmed it. And then finally, uh, we, we see that uh, it was not just their activity, but it was confirmed. To confirm, what does it mean to confirm something? Anybody ever had a notary? Uh, have to have a notary for anything? You know? Yeah. That, that notary authorizes and validates that this is a legal document. The apostles, through their testimony and their activity, validate that what Jesus Christ did on the cross is a legal, judicial transaction that purchased our salvation. He provided it for us. And then we see that uh, the, it's also uh, validated through what they, those who heard it. And then finally, it is confirmed by Christ God himself. If you look at the end of verse 4, it says, God also bearing witness. So you have the witness of the apostles and you have the witness of God himself. And in the presence of two or more witnesses, what? A matter is confirmed by two or more witnesses. And the witness of Jesus is the working of the Spirit of God through the apostles, and it says through signs and wonders, and so there were miracles of healing, there was miracles of raising people from the dead at the hands of the apostles to confirm the validity of the message and the authenticity of the, of the message by saying that these are authoritative messengers of the gospel, which leads me to believe that because the purpose in verse 4 both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, all of these miraculous things, I think, were done in order to authenticate the message. Because they were to authenticate the message and validate its truthfulness and giving credibility to the authority of the ones who brought it, it seems to me that that was the reason it was given at that time and so that those types of things are not needed to validate, authenticate the message today. We have the Word of God itself. And we have the conversion of people, which is a miraculous thing far greater than any other thing that you could imagine, a new birth, to validate the message. And so we have a message that's compelling. But there is another reason why we should be looking an incentive for owning the words of, of Jesus, and that's his ministry, which is, is absolutely freeing, liberating. Now, what's interesting to me is because the verses 1 through 4 is kind of like a parenthesis. It's almost like he, he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus over the angels in all of chapter 1, and then he revisits it now in chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. But he took this little break in between, and he says, look, so don't mess up. We have to listen to what's being said, and he sandwiches it in between it, the the credibility of the person and the work of Jesus. And so we come back. 
And our freedom is gained through two of Christ's actions. First of all, His humility restores our destiny. And I've personally, purposely chosen the word humility because all through chapter 2, verses 5 through 18, it speaks of the humiliation of Jesus. Meaning, His coming to earth to die. The humiliation of Jesus coming to this earth for the purpose of dying to purchase our salvation. And you see it over and over and over again in the text. His humility restores our destiny. The evidence for Christ's superiority, and therefore the superiority of Christianity, which comes in these next few verses, they're verses the angels. He's far superior to the angels in any other religious system you could follow because of the angels or any other heresy is given to those who are challenged and criticized. You know, that, that's where it comes to us. We live in a day and age when our faith is under the gun, when we're tempted to want to use the Tumblr Bible, when we're tempted to come, want to come to church and not feel any conviction, when we're tempted to have it, you know, the non-denominational church, you know, so we, some, we don't want to offend anybody. Now, I'm not saying we deliberately need to be offensive, but we don't want to shy away from the truth of the gospel, which offends every one of our sensibilities because we're sinful. So when someone says, you know, you really shouldn't sin because if you sin, you're condemned to hell. And if you're condemned to hell, I really don't like that. Oh, don't tell me about sin. If I don't tell you about sin, then you're going to hell. And I don't want that. So I'm going to tell you about sin. And so we see here that the, those who deny, and what's interesting is because the angels, the, the argument would go like this. Okay, so you say Jesus is better than the angels. But now you're making a big deal about Jesus becoming a human being. And we all know that angels are better than human beings. Well, that was their assumption. But those who deny the supremacy of Christ on the basis of his humanity, they misunderstand God's purpose and plan for mankind. And that's what he attempts to provide us with the evidence for as we proceed here. See, our destiny to rule is ordained by God. We are destined to rule even over the angels. So by virtue of his humanity, Jesus didn't compromise, except for a little time, his dominion. We're destined. Look at verse 5. Here's where it starts out. For he did not subject to angels. Who did not? God, the Father, did not subject to angels. He did not make angels rulers over what? The world to come. The future millennial reign of Christ where we as believers will rule with him, that's what he's talking about here, is not something that he set out for the angels to do. They're not going to rule it. No, that's not their part. That's not their, part. That's not their plan. There is a literal reign of Christ. You read it in Zechariah chapter 14. You read it in Revelation chapter 20. And I can give you other passages if you need it. But currently, Satan and his holy angels rule the world, right? This world, who rules it? Satan and his angels. We were, this morning, first service. John chapter 14, verse 30. Satan rules this world. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 31. Satan and his angels, they're in charge of things that are going on. Uh, albeit, God's still in charge. Don, don't hear me saying that God's not over them. It's, uh, they don't do anything without God saying, yeah, you can do this. But they are given the, the reign of it. And so right now, we were supposed to have it. Look, at angels are not confined in space like we are. They're not confined in time like we are. They're not limited in power like we are. They're not limited in their access to God like we are. Right? So they're, they're kind of in charge. Just think about this way. Uh, there's two princes uh, of Wales, okay, uh, Harry and William, right? Harry and William. But now interesting, isn't it? They're destined to rule. But they both went into the military. And when they're in the military, guess who's their boss? They're not in charge, right? They're subject to their leaders, even though they're destined to rule. What verse 5 says is that God created not angels, but he's saying human beings are the ones who will rule over the created world. That's what the world there means. It means the inhabited earth in the millennial kingdom. That's what's going to happen. God's ultimate intention is consistent 
with his original intention. And that's what verses 6 through 8 describe. What was God's original intention for mankind? Where you go back to the book of Genesis, what, what did God say to man? Genesis 1, 20, 26 and 27. We made man in our own image. And in the image of God we made him. To do what? Be fruitful and multiply, rule the earth and subdue it. That was the original intention by God. Now look at what the psalmist, he quotes the psalmist, again, appealing to the psalmist so that these Hebrew people who are listening to this know that this is not just pulling stuff out of a hat, but the authority of the Scripture that they cared about is what's speaking against their conclusion. Verses 6 or 8. But one has testified somewhere. (laughs) Well, you know, somewhere there's this quote. uh, And they knew exactly where somewhere was and who someone was who said this quote. What is man? You know, I said a a week ago that there are 100,000 million stars in our galaxy. And there are 100,000 million galaxies, each with 100,000 million stars. So who do you think you are? Who do I think I am? In the vastness of all that God has created, what is man? Mankind... And that's the text. Now listen to the glory of who is man. I'm going to summarize, but he says, I made man to rule over everything. Look with me, if you will, at the end of verse 8, which I think masterfully, and he's quoting Psalm 8 here, okay? He's quoting Psalm 8. And he says at the end, summarizing verse in the end of verse 8, for in subjecting all things to him, that's mankind, I take it to mean, He left nothing that is not subject to him. Now, that's kind of tripping over your negatives, right? He left nothing that's not subject. That means a double negative means a positive, right? That means everything's subject to him. So God made everything subject to mankind. So for the disciples of Christ under the rule of Nero... For our brothers and sisters meeting in secret in Cairo. For those of us who live in this country who are repeatedly trashed even when the Emmys are being handed out. This should be encouraging. Because God intended us to rule. That was his plan for us. He intends for us to rule over the grizzly bears and the lions and the soaring eagles and the oceans that he has created. And one day we will. The problem is what God intended has not been fully realized. Our dominion began in the garden. But look at verse 8, end of it. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Uh Uh-oh. What we were created for is not what we realize. What we were destined for is not what we experience. That's not what we realize. Why not? Because of sin. Because of sin, our dominion was interrupted. It was corrupted. And so we're no longer there ruling. Because of sin, our rule has been restrained. The rule given in Genesis 1.20 has been restrained. So that's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans, anxiously waiting for what? Our adoption as sons. He's waiting for the, the end of all time when we have been restored to this rightful rule and this place. So our destiny to rule was ordained by God, it was delayed by sin, and our destiny to rule is restored by Christ. That's verse 9. But we do see Him. Notice the contrast between verses 8 and 9. We do not see, what? What do we not see? All things subjected to us. But what do we see? That in the person and the work of Jesus, God's original intention for us is on its way to becoming a reality. We will rule. And the only way for our destiny to be restored is for our sin to be dealt with. And the only way our sin was dealt with was through the person and the work of Jesus. So Jesus became a perfect man, and then text says, for a little while lower than the angels. That's where he was for a little while lower than the angels, when he became a man and died on a cross, so that all who believe would gain his righteousness. 
and when we gain his righteousness, then we will rule and reign with him. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if by the transgression of one, death reigned through one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness, uh, the gift of righteousness, will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Through the gift of righteousness. And how do we receive righteousness? Righteousness comes to us through personal faith in Christ. It's, it's Romans chapter 3, verse 22. We're, we're made righteous by faith, okay? That's how we gain the righteousness. Christ's suffering at the cross, his humiliation resulted in his exaltation. He is crowned with glory and honor. Notice that's what the text says. Jesus, because of suffering and his death, crowned with glory and honor. Well, this is Philippians 2. He was humiliated, and then he was crowned with glory and honor. And one day every, name, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He was and is crowned with glory and honor. So he is reigning. And one day, in fulfillment of Psalm 8, he and us who are righteous in him will reign. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says. He made him who knew no sin, that is God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And when we have righteousness in God, according to Romans 5.17, we're going to reign with him in life. That's the plan that God has to restore it all back to, together. And that's Revelation chapter 5. and uh, You can read verses 9 through 20 or 10 and 9 and 10 and, and Revelation 20 verse 4. We don't have to go to all those right now. We'll just skip them. You can write them down. So he restores our destiny and then finally he remedies our depravity. That's how his ministry is so superior. He remedies our depravity. And the rest of the text points out five achievements of Christ's coming to earth to die, that's his humiliation, that show he's the perfect remedy for our, our depravity. He's our substitute. Look at verse 9 again. But we do not see him who has been, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death. By the grace of God, whose initiation is mankind's redemption? It's not ours. It's God's. By the grace of God. What is the grace of God? It's the unmerited, undeserved favor of God. So there's a couple of things. Hughes points out this. He says, the initiative which procured our redemption is God's, not ours. And then Christ's action, he demonstrated his unmerited favor and lavished his grace on guilty, doomed sinners by becoming a human being and dying on the cross, which he didn't deserve. Maximilian Kolbe was in a prison camp in Poland. And there was a man, I may have told you this story before, there was a man who was uh, violated some, something the guard wanted him to do, and the guard says, he must die. So he put him, they were going to put him in the box as basically a starvation place where you just starve till you died. Maximilian Kolb, this guy had a family, and Maximilian Kolbe went and he says to the guard, he said, he approached the guard, which could have got him shot, but he says, I will go in his place. Fine, you die. The guard didn't care. He went to the crawl, he went to that box and he died in his place. That's what Jesus did. By the grace of God, because none of us deserved what Jesus did. By the grace of God, the text says that he tasted death. Um, you guys going to Haiti, you're going to taste. Uh, well, you're actually not going to. In the biblical sense, you won't even taste what Haiti's like. Because you won't be there long enough. To taste means to fully embrace it. To fully understand it. To fully experience it. You can't do that in a week. You can get a good picture. But you, you can't fully do it in a week. Yeah, you lived there for a year or two, then you would like, oh boy, this is, this is a lot worse than I thought it was, or a lot better than I thought it was going to be. But here, he tasted death, which to taste death means that he fully understood it. He fully embraced it. Death is a consequence of sin, and Christ never sinned, and so he died so that he would taste death now get this, 
What does the text say? Look at the text. He tastes death for everyone. Now, what does that mean? I think it means what it says. If the simple sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And it says he tasted death for everyone. He experienced the full weight of all sin of every human being for all time. Uh Uh-oh. Now, some of your theological categories have been shattered or challenged. It's not preaching universalism. It's not saying that everybody's saved. But it does, in my understanding, mean that everybody's sin has been dealt with. But only those who believe are saved. Only those who are believed are redeemed. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You didn't say just because Jesus died you're saved. He says only if you repent and turn are you saved. Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place, which can only happen if we deserve to die. And we do deserve to die, but if we don't tell people that they're sinful, then they don't think they need to, that they're going to die. And if they don't think they're going to die, then they don't think they need a Savior. I had a conversation with a guy, and he says, I don't know what I need to be saved from. He didn't think he needed to be saved. That's most of our world. That's most of the people you work with. Many in your family, they don't think they need to be saved. What do they need to be saved from? He's our Savior, not our, only our substitute, but our Savior in verse 10. For it was fitting. Fitting. Now think about that. It was fitting for God to make complete, to perfect the author, the, the originator, the only one of our salvation, our Savior, through His suffering. We'll learn later in Hebrews 5.8, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He was complete as our Savior. This blew the minds of the Jewish people. Why would the Messiah have to suffer? It was God's plan. Because only in God's plan could his, his righteousness and his holiness and his justice and his love be satisfied in the person and work of Jesus as he died as our substitute and then we could be saved. It had to be that way. So it was fitting for God to make him suffer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we are healed. Not because we walked forward, not because we raised our hand, not because we did Stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight in church. Not because we were baptized, because His wounds healed us if we're trusting in Him. Now, if you did one of those things as an evidence of your trust, that's different, but that's between you and God. He's our Savior. He saved us from sin, and He's our sanctifier. Look at verses 11 through 13. For both He who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's those who are trusting in Jesus, He makes us holy. That's what sanctified means, to make holy, to make us holy. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, says that he did this once for all. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Christ. It's the blood of Christ once for all that makes us holy, set apart, righteous before a holy and righteous God. We're made holy only through faith in Christ's death as the payment for our sin. And that's what Romans 3.22 says. We have Romans 3.22. Yeah, even the righteousness of God through faith in Him. See, the righteousness comes through faith. His blood was shed, but only those who believe have the righteousness of God applied to their hearts, imputed to them because they believe. He is our sanctification. He sanctifies us. And then there, these passages, verses 11, uh, 12, and 13 are just Old Testament quotes that prove what He just said. I'm not going to elaborate on them. It's Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 8. But they prove that Christ and those who share, uh, find their fulfillment in in Christ and those who share his righteousness. But our challenge is, hey, so if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Jesus, then you are righteous. Positionally. Problem is, we don't always practice our position. (laughs) 
And so the challenge is to practice what's really true of us. Jesus is also our liberator, verses 14 and 15. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood. Now here's, again, the repeated flesh and blood, flesh and blood, the humiliation of Jesus. So too, Jesus had to share it. He himself likewise partook. Uh, That's an interesting word, partook. It means he didn't previously possess it. He partook of flesh and blood right? To accomplish the victory over sin and death. What does the text say? It says, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render him powerless, him who had the power of death. Who's that? He says, Satan. Do you know that's the biggest fear of people, dying? And that's Satan's greatest weapon. And what Jesus did, he disarmed the enemy when he died on the cross and rose again from the dead. He disarmed the enemy. He delivered us from the penalty of sin, which is death. He delivered us from the slavery of sin, which is the power of sin, which is the, 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 the power of sin over us every day. So the penalty and power have been nullified. We're free. We're free. In Christ, we're free. Apart from Christ, we're enslaved. That's what he says. He freed us. We're no longer slaves of sin because of what Jesus did. My grandpa used to have a dog named Spike. Spike was a, now, I know this may offend some of you. He was a cat killer. Spike was. He was a little mutt dog, but he did not like cats. And I remember one day out at my grandpa's farm, Spike had a cat in his death grip. And he was shaking his head for all he was worth. And my grandpa went up and said, stop that. Grabbed Spike by the nap of the neck and rescued the cat. Folks, we are the cat. And Spike is the enemy, Satan. And he has us in his death grip. And until the blood of Christ is applied to your life and my life, we will die at the shaking grip of the enemy. But in God's grace and by God's grace, he freed us, just like my grandpa freed that little kitty. And that kitty went on to live. He is our liberator. He liberates us. And it says that he didn't just cover our sins. It says that he is the propitiation for our sins. I know you go, oh boy, I get tired of these $64 words, you know. But there, it's all right, you just need to learn the meaning of the word. It means the atoning sacrifice. He satisfied fully the wrath of God against us because we deserved God's wrath. How cool is that? Spike had no reason to be wrathful against the kitty, but he was. God satisfied, God's wrath was satisfied in Christ. And that satisfaction is applied to all who believe. He didn't just cover it over. Not like, as we read this morning in the first service, as we, I preached on the very first series in Hebrews, in verse 3, where it says, he, after he made uh, purification for sin, he sat down. Which means the priest's work is done. The wrath of God has been satisfied in the work of Christ, and the wrath of God will be satisfied in your life only when you apply the work of Christ to your life through faith. Finally, Jesus is our helper. And you know, again, this is written to people who need to be encouraged in Jesus. Notice the the verse, it says in verse 16, that for assuredly he does not give help to angels. Redemption is not something that God accomplished for angels. He did it for us. He does not give help to angels. And the help is to Abraham's children, not just those who are genealogically related, but if you understand Romans 4 and Galatians, those who are Abraham's children by faith, he did it for us. And the writer in verse 17 explains both the necessity of his humanity and the means whereby he gained victory. In mercy, he became like one of us. Again, humility of Jesus in verse 17. He became like one of us that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God that he would make propitiation for our sins. And then verse 18. You know, some of you are going through some tough stuff. And if you haven't gone through it, you will. 
What this verse tells me is that we have a sympathetic high priest. It's also Hebrews chapter 4, which we haven't got to yet. A high priest who is tempted like in all ways like we are and yet without sin. He can sympathize with our challenges, sympathize with our rejection. He can sympathize with our disappointments. He can sympathize with our physical weakness. He can sympathize with our discouragement and our frustration and all the things that plague us and all the common temptations of man. And yet in all of it, he did not give up and he calls us not to give up or to give in, but to go on. Why? Read the text. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I don't know where you're at, but I know a Savior who is able to come to your aid in whatever challenge, whatever struggle, whatever hardship, whatever ache, whatever pain. And that's the marvel of this Savior, Jesus. This is a message that's very compelling, and there's proof positive to it. And those of us who know it, we should be compelled to share it. There is proof positive because there is a, a ministry that he's done to liberate us. We don't deserve it. In the 1960s, the Gospel Tract Society published a tract, and the article's name was, I've Made My Choice. It was written by an NBA basketball player who played for the New York Knicks, and he was active in FCA, and he was giving his testimony of how he'd come to know Jesus, and he was living for Jesus. I've made my choice. The guy even preached at a Billy Graham crusade. Years later, Bill Bradley said this, I became bothered by the exclusive truth claims of fundamentalism. Increasingly, I resist the exclusivity of true believers. I seek my own individual faith. How's that happen? Read verse 3. Chapter 2. He says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The warning is given to us in verse 1. We must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Bill Bradley forgot what he had heard. He was a person who was aware, but he wasn't owning the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm here this morning to invite you, to implore you, to challenge you. Don't be a sitter on the premises. Own the truth. Each of us must wave the white flag of surrender to Jesus Christ and say, you are my Lord and my Master and there is no other, or we will be on that one degree drift away from the truth of the gospel that will lead us to a great condemnation. So unbelievers, whether you're drifting or you're deliberately denying, my plea to you is trust Christ today. And those of us who know Jesus, hey, there is so much in this text. Celebrate that our destiny is restored. We will one day rule and reign with Jesus. And right now, He is our Savior, our liberator, and He is the one who is our helper. Jesus had to come and suffer and die for us because we would suffer and die because of our sin. And so as we break this bread and, and, and share this cup, we remember what he did for us, God's grace in providing a way for undeserved sinners to be rescued and restored into right relationship with God. We deserve death, but he died in our place so that we could live. We're the little kitty in the grip of Spike, deserving and ready to die, but God rescued us. Let's pray. Father, give us grace to embrace these truths, to let them saturate our minds, and to understand your plan. I pray that if anyone does not know Jesus, that they would turn and trust because of the compelling message and because of the liberating ministry of Jesus. And I ask that as we take this bread and drink this cup, as you lead us, everyone here invited, if they know Jesus as Lord and Savior, to do so, that we'd remember what you've done for us. And rejoice in it, but not just rejoice in it, but leave this place committed to share and show that love to those around us, we pray in Jesus' name.